Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And if I sound a little annoyed, <laughs> it's because I am. Why would because, you be annoyed? Because this dude, every every week before we start the podcast, we check every the mics week. because apparently that's a thing that like you need to check the absolutely. And I am so grateful for all of your tech expertise. But and so he will say to me, he'll check his mic and then he'll say to me, say something. And then I usually say something, say something or something. And he's like, <laughs> that's lame. And so this week. He text, He checked his mic and he said, test, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three. And then he said, say something. And I said, test, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three. Not with that tone. And then he said, are you mocking me? And it, I was like, sir, <laughs> you, you, it felt I like mean, you were mocking me. I just do not like when you, you should not punish the behavior you want to see. I mean, I said literally exactly the same thing that you said when you tested your mics and then you told me that it was wrong. That, when Matthew gets to be a teenager, he's really going to resent that. Well, you know, he'll just have to put up with it. And you are worth putting up with, but I'm just saying, like, I'm going to need you to tell me exactly what I am and am not allowed to say while I test the microphone. I will write it down. Excellent. I will comply because Lord knows I need some kind of headship over me to tell me what I'm allowed to say. I I knew you were going there. Well, you know, it was right there. Anyway, (laughs) what's astonishing you? Let's see. Um, Well, if you are coming from um, a Pentecostal or Baptist. I'm sorry, or... I should just interrupt to say you also brought me coffee this morning, so I really That's should. Right. <laughs> I brought you coffee this morning. Wow. I mean, JK, JK. How I'm just saying, quickly it was funny. we forget no, the I kindness. Just, you, you started talking and I took a sip of my coffee and I was like, maybe I want to dial this back. <laughs> maybe I would like to take several seats. Sorry. Sorry. Thanks for the coffee. You're a great uh, friend. And, and I'm astonished that I didn't think of that. I, I brought you coffee. <laughs> That's right. The spirit okay. might have just reminded me. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, um, what, what's, what's astonishing <laughs> you, friend? <laughs> well, if you're coming from a Pentecostal, Baptist, or non-denominational um, tradition, what I'm about to say will probably sound like a bit, a big old duh. I mean, right. like... Doesn't everybody do this? But in Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic culture, it's not every Sunday that you get a clear, intentional invitation to become a disciple of Jesus. Right. And I, you know, 90% of Sundays, I give an invitation to discipleship at the end of worship. And usually it's in two parts. The first part is uh, for anyone who is coming to faith in Jesus, um, as uh, I believe Bill Hybels used to say, crossing the line of faith. And um, and I, I, you know, quote scriptures like, um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. Uh, those kinds of texts, and um, I give this invitation. And it does feel awkward as you're looking out at the same 30 people that you had the Sunday before and the Sunday before that and the Sunday before that. Uh, So part one is uh, just an invitation to believe in Jesus. And the second part is an invitation for those who are already believers to become member partners of Derida Church. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I give this invitation, and it is always astonishing when someone says yes. So mm-hmm. just, you know, a, a week ago, I gave the invitation not very well, mm-hmm. not with very much enthusiasm. I could sense that, um, you know, it was almost 1230. People wanted to go to lunch. It's like, okay, let's just do this. And... This guy on the second row yells out, "Here I am!" Hmm. And um, someone that I know that I've known for a long time uh, from another congregation. And um, 
I don't know if I talked about this on on the podcast. About a week later, well, well, he, you know, we welcomed him, and that was all great and beautiful that Sunday. And then a week later, he said to me, you know, preacher, you didn't ask me anything. I was like, well, what do you mean? You didn't ask me, like, do I believe? You didn't ask me any faith questions. And normally what I do is when someone is wanting to join the church, I meet with them sometime after worship that following week Mm -hmm. and ask faith questions, blah, blah, blah. And then I report that to the board of elders who, you know, formally puts them on the roll. And he was like, don't you think that should be like a public thing? I was like, you know what? You're right. And a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, Mm -hmm. I used to do that. And so this past week I had Sam come forward and I asked him several questions about his faith. I mean, do you turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I mean, they, they were yes, no questions, yeah. right? Do you turn from the ways of sin? Do you promise to be um, Christ's faithful disciple in this congregation using your gifts, blah, blah, blah. And then I gave him, gave him an opportunity to share how he came to faith in Jesus. Not anything spectacular. There yeah. was no thunder and lightning, just his story. And it was powerful. Mm-hmm. And I left thinking, why, why don't I do this all the time? Just give people opportunities to witness to their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I, I'm astonished by this very simple, what felt like, I'm going back to giving the invitation, it felt um this is really convicting. Um, it felt silly. It felt like, okay, I'm just kind of going through the motions here. And yet it turned out to be just a powerful blessing for me and the entire congregation. Yeah, I think it's so, and we, um, I think it's so important. And I mean, and you and I are both this way, like people who were not born into, into families that of practicing Christians. And so it's really important. And this is why I am so committed and called to quote traditional church ministry, like a church that is meeting in public at a defined place and time where you don't need to know someone in order to walk through the doors, right? Like I, I just think there needs to be like public access points, like on ramps to um, life in this community. And I think that's just one of the most beautiful things about being a Christian and Honestly, because of the ways that I think um, it has been, because of the ways that I think the devil is good at his job, and so there there have been ways that that's been twisted from something beautiful into something ugly. But the but the fact that we have a tradition that says this is our most sacred, this is our most sacred life, and anyone is welcome. Like it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter like any person who wants to be a part of this incalculably precious community is welcome. And we, and we gather publicly and there's no you know, there's no interview. There's no initiation, right? There's no probationary period we are able to wildly welcome people into our community trusting Jesus. And that is so beautiful because, you know, there are, there are many other expressions of faith that, that, that is not the case where the doors are not wide open, where you have to be born into a community. I mean, the reality is, I mean, you can convert to Judaism, but Judaism is not a faith that seeks converts. Like it is, you know, it is primarily an ethnic an expression of ethnic identity. Um, and, you know, the Muslim faith I'm less familiar with, but and, and there is an, an ability to convert, but there is a, a process. Um, and I think a lot of Christians believe, like, we should have a process, right? And I've been a part of a lot of churches where they're like, you know, there should, we don't want, you know, people need to prove that they really understand or they really believe or that they're really committed. Like, we look at the world and say, well, anything that's worthy you have to work for it. You have to earn it. You have to deserve it. And the truth is, 
that the Christian faith is the antithesis of that. In the Christian faith, you have to need it. Um, you have to, um, and, and people who, who don't deserve it and haven't earned it and don't understand it are, are welcome and gathered in all the time, sometimes actively seeking and sometimes actively resisting. And this is just, you know, this is from the beginning, Jesus is walking around um, and, and, you know, approaching people in this way and, and including and investing in people who did not understand, did not agree, did not yet hold the values of the kingdom of God. You know, he's saying to Peter, I'm going to build the church. You're the rock on which I'm going to build the church. And Peter is actively at that point opposed to Jesus's one mission of confronting the forces of sin, evil, and death, pouring out his blood for the redemption and salvation of all humanity. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And Jesus is saying, not long after to Jesus, you will never go to Jerusalem and die. I will not allow it. So this idea that like we need some standards up in here is just really unbiblical. Um, and And I think it's so beautiful. And I do think it's important not just that we are you know, open and inviting people in. And I, but also, you know, having those moments in worship and we, and we keep trying to put that moment in at the Grove and I keep forgetting I'm the weak link of just at the end of the worship service of just having folks up front and saying, you know, if the Lord has moved in your life in a special way today, if you want to pray, if you want to cross the line to faith, you know, we're, we're waiting for you. And it is hard because you make yourself so vulnerable as a community um, to, you know, people have this expectation of what's supposed to happen and being willing to make that invitation and seeing like the worthiness and the sacredness of making that invitation without and, and being detached from the outcome of that is just really beautiful and important. But that's not something that our culture will prize us to see as valued. People have in mind, I think, images of a Billy Graham crusade, right? You give the invitation and people come streaming to the front. Well, and I think a lot of times like people come out of communities where an altar call is offered and they have experienced, um, you know, a, a lot of pressure of like, you need to, somebody's got to come up and get saved today, even if it's or not real. Right. Or, or, you know, there's this, this pressure in the community of like, you better do, somebody better do this. And we don't care if it's authentic or sincere we just need to look like it's done and so I think you know being able to offer the invitation and being able to have peace in knowing that many times the majority of the time it's not you know you won't see that visible fruit and that doesn't mean anybody's failed you know it's just retraining our eyes like how many people did Jesus invite to faith who who walked away from you know actual Jesus. So the idea that we, you know, would feel embarrassed at, you know, our job and, you know, try to say this a lot to people like our job is to make the invitation in, in freedom. And then we're not responsible for other people's choices. No, we are responsible for judging them. Right. I mean, I, I, and by with that, I mean, if you judge people for Correct. their response, yes. you are responsible for that. But I knew what you meant. Um, but I, I want to clarify because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just can't take these things for granted. But um, yeah, but I mean, I think that's really beautiful. I mean, when I was with you all that first Sunday that I was taking a break here, oh, that's right. I yeah. mean, there was just that moment. And I just thought it's really, it's costly, right? Like you say, it's awkward. I would say it's a costly mm-hmm. moment. And that's and it's a moment where you as a community you're really embodying the values of not just Derrida but of the whole the whole thing and i do think like we answer we do those three questions every time um it's always good when i am affirmed that i'm doing it right you know do you do you turn away from sin and evil mm-hmm. in the world and in your own heart do you turn towards the lord jesus and accept him as savior and lord follow him as lord and then do you um, promise with God's help to be a faithful member of this community following Jesus here, whatever. And, and I think, you know, those are the pertinent questions yeah. and to say, and I have gotten away from this, but a lot of times I like to ask everyone in the church who is a member to take it as an opportunity 
to reaffirm oh, that's their commitment idea. to Jesus and the church because it's a, you know, we never get to a point where we're like, oh yeah, I turned away from evil, you know, when I was eight years old <laughs> at that. the camp meeting in Augusta, Georgia, and like I'm good, like I've been Nailed straight it. ever since, right? Like Nailed no, this it. is a consistent every every day, sometimes every moment, we're turning away from what ultimately breeds death and turning towards what brings life and um and it, it's a you know it's not a one and done so yeah yeah it's really beautiful so what is astonishing you well i am astonished shocked i say <laughs> to discover there is gambling in this establishment i wait, um <laughs> just wait what? wait for it i'm getting there i'm what? getting there um I, you know, that's a, that's a phrase, right? That's a, I'm not really talking about gambling. All right, just forget it. Never forget it. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Oh, it's like a, it's like a phrase from like when they would raid speakeasies during prohibition and the police would come in and the proprietor would be like, what? <laughs> now that context <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> there, there's, people are gambling here? I'm shocked I'm and shocked. surprised. I'm shocked. I'm surprised. I had no idea. I am shocked and surprised to hear this week that the Southern Baptist Convention has proposed an amendment to their constitution that is in direct defiance of the word of God and the authority of the Bible. And I just have always felt like, you know, we had some differences, um, some, some, some real differences, some, some real um, uh, just divergence in how we understood the proper expression of the gospel. Um, but to see the Southern Baptist Convention defy the words of scripture and uh, adopt a propose an, um, an uh, amendment that is in defiance of the authoritative word of God. Like I've always really understood like having a high view of scripture was one sort of point of common ground between me and my sisters and the, and brothers in the Southern Baptist church. But, but you know, um, the word of God is clear in Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter three, verse 28, that in Christ Jesus, there is no longer male or females, um, Jew or Greek, slave or free for all are one in Christ Jesus. Right. So, so Paul is saying in his letter to the Galatians that, Hey, once you come into Christ, your ethnic identity is gone. Your gender identity is gone. And, and any way of like power dynamics, like ec economic um, hierarchies that would, you know, oppress and like all these things have to be cast away. These hierarchies and differentiate, they, they just don't exist anymore in the body of Christ because we're all one. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That is such a, um, just a core essential teaching. And the Southern Baptist Church, I, I'm shocked, has passed an amendment this week to say, actually, in the body of Christ, there is male and female. These are two distinct identities. They are not one. They are different. And that men are superior. They're, they're not equal. Men and women are not equal. Clearly um, calling out egalitarian theology and feminism um, to say, no, 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 no. There, there is a male and female dichotomy hierarchy in the body of Christ. It must be maintained and men must have authority over women at all times and in all places. And I am just really sad um, that the Southern Baptist Church has, has decided to defy the authority of Scripture and conform to the world um, and really longstanding historic um, brokenness of the world. And um, that, that's really sad for me. It's sad for me that the Holy Spirit is actually able um, to make more headway and progress in, in secular culture than in um, the very body of Christ. And I just, you know, I think of Paul writing to the Galatians and just starting the letter by saying, like, I am astonished that you have so quickly abandoned the gospel, which has brought you to life. And I just feel, you know, like if Paul, you know, Paul's letter just really speaks to this moment. And I'm just grieving um, for my sisters and brothers within the Southern Baptist um, Convention. And and for the way that um, the enemy of our souls has has just really um, temporarily succeeded in just twisting and distorting and 
profaning profaning and blaspheming the name of Jesus and I'm I'm just grieving that and I'm I'm sorry for that and I I just hate to hear um, that they're passing that amendment to the Constitution and I hate to hear that there are um, some churches that they are um, disfellowshipping because there are uh, women who hold the title of pastor in those communities and so they're now being um, rejected and ejected um, from from the body and I I think that's really just um, uh, just really tragic and you know I was riding to the to the church today and my kids are in the car because they're volunteering downstairs and um, we were listening to a story on the radio and um, you know three daughters and we're and we're listening to a story on the radio about this and um, there was a, a woman um, from the Southern Baptist Commission one of the messengers who had who was speaking in favor of this amendment and saying you know we just really need to continue to maintain um, the the differences between men and women and we need to make sure that our daughters and our granddaughters know distinctly um, what it means to be a woman and the differences that cannot be transgressed and I you know I just that that's really sad and I also um, you know I think it's really interesting at, at to see the continuum right because when we look at an expression of Islam and I'm no expert in Islam but people who are say that this is also a distortion but when we look at expressions of Islam that require women to wear, um, you know, the the hijab or, or to be fully covered in public um, because their bodies um, are are seen as, um, you know, an invitation to temptation and that it's just unseemly that women would be seen in the public sphere and that their bodies and looking at their bodies belong to the men who have control over them. And I think, you know, there's just not really, it, it's the same theo- it's the same theology of understanding that there is just an ontological difference in the humanity of a, a person born a woman and the humanity of a person born a man and that men um, are are made to have power and authority and control over all aspects of the humanity of people born women and you know and and wanting that distinction between the genders to be um, make, you know performed in a in a very particular way and the threat of you know both expulsion and and death and you know you can you can say well this is just about women not being called pastors and and you know then it's about well what kinds of clothes can and can't a woman wear and then what kinds of clothes um, what kinds of um, you know speech can a, you know when can a woman speak I mean the Southern Baptist community is now wanting to ratify within their constitution that women are not allowed to teach scripture to men um, so that so that's a very interesting thing. So you can be a follower of Jesus. You can read the scripture. It's okay to learn about scripture, but it's not allowed. You are not allowed to speak about scripture in front of a man, in front of a man, um, because you can't have authority over him. And so now we are saying that women are only allowed to speak. Um, about the word of God in front of certain, you know, men under the age of 18. And then once a man uh, gets to be 18, a woman is no longer allowed to speak about the Bible in, in front of that person. So you can't just not be a pastor. You can't. So, I mean, it's just a real slippery slope. And I, I and it's a, you know, it's a, it's diabolical. Like one of the things that I believe that Jesus ushers in is a, um, is a kingdom where people can flourish um, and can flourish together and not in competition and um, that humanity, people's humanity is restored. And, and, you know, I am very much aware that some people read the Bible through the lens of the culture. And so they read into scripture, the kinds of gender hierarchies that they um, understand and want to maintain and feel comfortable with, but it's a, um, but it's just a real shame that um, the paradigm shifting, radical, risky, world altering um, expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we find in places like Paul's letter to the Galatians has been forsaken and abandoned um, by the Southern Baptist Church. It just makes me makes me sad. I'm astonished. I'm astonished. I mean, which is how Paul starts. I am astonished. That's how he so I'm astonished that, that this has happened. And I, I grieve and I just pray um, that that I 
and my brothers and sisters in the Southern Baptist Church would just continue to um, seek the Lord to show us not what we are looking to read in Scripture, but actually the revelation that is in Scripture. And that revelation from the words of Scripture would lead us to the revelation, the living word of God, which is Jesus Christ, who is still alive um, and present and active in the world today, continuing to bring more and more understanding to us. So I'm astonished. You know, it's really hard to be your friend. I don't know how we can continue to be (laughs) friends because I always have such difficulty trying to figure out where you stand on things. And you're just not very clear. And well, the, so I don't I don't know how much longer we can. Be I mean, friends. the important thing is that you never ever so... never it's the important thing is that you never ever learn anything <laughs> from me. Right. Because that is what's really, you're really important. That that you're the teacher and I can be the learner. And there's no there, you know. I mean, like I think it's really interesting that at and my one of my favorite stories is um when the prophet Balaam is uh, resisting God's uh, call in his life, and God is trying to tell him to turn back from his assignment to go and curse the nation of Israel, and he is ignoring God, and the so God stops his donkey, and um, you know is appearing on the road in front of the donkey as an angel with flaming swords. But Balaam, the man of God, the prophet, can't see the angel, but the donkey can, and so the donkey you know, is is scared and is understanding that if there's an angel with a flaming sword standing in front of you saying, do not go this way, the smart thing to do... You should probably stop. You should stop. You should turn around. But Balaam is insistent that, like, he's going to go and do what he knows he's supposed to do. Uh, and so he's beating this donkey, you know, because the donkey is defying his, Balaam's, authority. Uh, the donkey's trying to obey God's authority, but the prophet is hitting the donkey. And uh, finally, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey to say to the man, what the, uh, this is a loose translation, but like, what the, what the what? <laughs> like, why are you beating me, you blockhead? And, um, you know, I think it's interesting that scripture says that, that um, donkeys can preach to men. But um, we assume that uh, women, of course, cannot. So I, I think it's... Well, you saw uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's decision in light of Galatians. Um, my first thought was Acts chapter 2, because we recently celebrated Pentecost, where Peter um, interprets for the crowd what was happening on the day the Holy Spirit um, filled the church and people were speaking in other tongues, praising the works of God. And Peter says, no, this was prophesied in Joel Mm -hmm. because God says in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all A-L-L flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And the word prophecy in the Hebrew is also translated as wait for it. preach yeah and so i think you know this is one of the kinds of glosses that that people try to do to say like okay well a woman's allowed to prophesy but not to preach and you know that's just um not doing the full work of looking at the original text and looking at the word and saying okay this particular word is used it can mean prophesy but it's used in other places in scripture to mean preach so it can mean both and so if you're going to arbitrarily decide that well, God couldn't have meant this because it makes me uncomfortable because it because it threatens the established world order. And let's just be clear like that. That's explicitly what people are saying is we want to go back mm-hmm. to the way it used to be, which is sort of what people in the church have been saying since Constantine. Right. And, you know, 328, like we want Jesus. We don't want to go to hell when we die, but we want the world to stay the way it is because we got some power here and we want to hold on to it. Um, And we're not interested in radical kinship. We're not interested in returning to shalom. We're interested in continuing to work the angles and work our advantages and get to the top and the center. And this is just the absolute um, radical departure from the 
from the model of Jesus, which is being in absolute, um, you know, in, in absolute equality with God, considered not equality with God as an advantage to be, as, as, a, as an attribute to be used to his advantage, but emptied himself out and took on the form of a human. And, you know, you, you all know the, the phrase. What's that from? That's from Hebrews, right? Yes. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I was at Louisville Seminary, I remember taking Old Testament 101, and one of the first exercises um, for the class was to write, I think, a one-paragraph, I don't think it was a one-page, but a one-paragraph summary of Genesis 1. And so I wrote my one-paragraph summary, and, the, and, and we were not told this up front, but the point of this exercise was to help you see uh, your own biases in the text mm -hmm. to help you see what you are reading into the text. And I remember I got my paragraph back and I had said something like Genesis 1 is about the fall of humanity. And the professor oh, wrote funny. in red, where do you see the word fall in the text? Mm -hmm. Right. And I just been given that word that it's about the fall. Is it really about what, where, why, why do you use that particular word to describe Genesis 1? And so when it comes to the Southern Baptist Convention's decision, once again, I see how easy it is uh, and because I, I think for some people it is very, very intentional. For others, it's unintentional, uh, unintentional to read your own bias into the text. And so if you come to the text with a bias that says uh, that women are in their being inferior to men, then you will just read that into the text and you won't be able to see um, – God's liberating kingdom the way it is presented in the scripture. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to be clear, everyone comes to the text with bias. Everyone. So uh, that's Very much why including, we need including one another. Me and that's why yes. um, I would say to someone who is walking away from the church, who is walking away from the faith, saying, well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, right? Okay, yes, but... The proper response is not to walk away. The proper response is, is to wrestle, right. is to stay in community and conversation with people who are, are different than you. That's why we need multi-ethnic, multicultural um, uh, diversity in class and gender congregations. And spiritual because, diversity, right? Yes. We need people who have come from different places who have different gifts and different anointings and different strengths and mm -hmm. different weaknesses mm -hmm. gathered together in, in the body. And I think, the, you know, the end, the, the bottom line is a lot of us, when we come to faith, what we are looking for is to check a box, right? Like we just show up and say, tell me what's true. Tell me what I have to believe. Tell me what I have to do. And I'll do it. So that then I can go on living my life and that is in the, the way very that I want opposite to. of view of the Hebrew Bible. It's meant to be this um, spiritual meditation literature so that even when one reads it through beginning to end, you're supposed to for a lifetime keep reading it, keep chewing on it, keep coming back to it, keep meditating on it because you don't get it the first time. Right. Well, and this is, I mean, if you also think about like the lawyer coming to Jesus and saying like, what do I got to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, you, you know, tell, you read the scripture. How do you read it? And so he gives an answer, uh, you know, different versions. There are different versions of it. But I think in, in one version, um, you know, he says, love, love the Lord your God and your neighbor. And Jesus looks on him and loves him. I might be conflating some of these. And in another version, he, he shows up and says, I've kept the commandments from my youth. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? In either case, he has an answer. Like he has read the scripture and figured out for himself what is required. Jesus looks on him and loves him. Mm -hmm. And then you know, and then says like you you spoken right, and and then the guy comes back with a second question because we think okay, if I can just get this God itch scratched, if I can just know that I'm doing it right, then I can be fulfilled and happy. And like the truth is, the guy gets from Jesus an affirmation of like, yep, buddy, you got it. And then he says like, 
you know, but I forget what his follow up, his secondary question is like, who is my neighbor? Right. And and that's when Jesus tells the good Samaritan. And in another place, you know, he says, he says, I've done all this in my youth. And Jesus says, looks on him and loves him and says, then if you want to be perfect, sell all you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the guy's like, yeah, I don't. I, I both am, know there's something more and I want the something more. I know that just believing the right things and doing the right things is not enough. I know that there's something in me that is restless until it finds its rest in you. Like I'm the one who showed up asking. And yet when Jesus says to him what Jesus says to all of us, which is like, there is more, there is another life for you, but you have to surrender your current life in order to step into the new, right? Like if you want to say that as die to self or if you want to repent or if you, like whatever language you want to put on that, it's just to say like we were made for union with Jesus and union with Jesus is the first thing, not an add-on. And so, you know, the reality is we often are the ones who come and say, I'm not, there must be something more. And then when Jesus says there is something more, you were not designed as like to carry around a moral checklist, a moral to-do list, and and then, you know, satisfy God and then go off on your own and do whatever feels seems good to you. Like that is not going to lead you actually to life, even though it looks like it was. You were made for union with God. And so that requires surrendering our own uh, wisdom and desires and and trying, walking by faith, taking a step and saying, like, what does it look like if I do the thing that actually isn't, you know, is risky, is unknown, is unpredictable? Like, what does it look like to take a step into not centering my own preferences and desires, but centering God's, which is to center the preferences and desires of my neighbors? Like, what does that look like? Like, that's the call of faith. And it is, it's not a both and call. It's a, it's a decision. And that's not to say that people are going to be, you know, booted down the shoot to hell if they don't make it by a certain point like I'm not talking about after death eternal you know that's not something that I have the authority or the wisdom it can even pretend but what I what I am definitely talking about is life here and now the kingdom in our midst now like what does God have for us now and it's not a matter of what we have the right to do it's a matter of what is our desire like do we want a side of Jesus or do we want to say actually I want Jesus to be my the center of my life I I understand that my real life comes from Jesus not apart from Jesus and and I think um you know that's that's the real challenge of of understanding that just because we have some good theology or some faith practices that we find meaningful that doesn't mean that we we have um we have come into the full knowing of god and i say that not as like a threat you know like i remember growing up and like being on my journey um, to life with Jesus and and a local church welcoming me. And so the local church is the place where I found Jesus. And then I go to these youth conferences and people would stand up on the stage and say things like, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car, right? And I was just like, okay, that's a really hard thing for a 14-year-old who wasn't born into a Christian family to hear basically like, it felt like a threat, like there's a whole other level and you may or may not ever get there. And also you're not really a Christian, so good luck and we'll let you know, right? I don't say that as like a threat at all, but it's just to say there's more, like more goodness, more depth, more life. And and at this point, we really do control how much of it we get. And so if you don't want any more, like if you're good, if you're satisfied, like fantastic, like stay where you are until you desire more. Well, but if you desire more, go to Jesus. What's required is a level of humility that says, I know I don't have it all. And I know I could be wrong about some things. And it's like thinking about the the story of the prodigal 
son or the prodigal father, however you frame that, that when the younger son comes to the father and is like, I don't want to be here anymore, the father doesn't say like, well, you ungrateful piece of crap, get out of here. And, you know, father's like, if you don't, if you don't want this life, then I'm not going to, I need to let you go and try the life that you do want because this has to be your choice. You can't be here out of fear. You can't be here because you think like, well, I, I mean, it just, it has to be a free choice. You have to desire more of Jesus, not feel threatened um, or, or like, I'm afraid I'm going to burn in hell or I'm, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected by our community. Like we get to be here. We get to do this. I was listening to someone who is in support of the Southern Baptist decision and they were saying, well, churches like Rick Warren's Saddleback uh, Church in California uh, that's been ordaining uh, women, they are just a part of the woke feminist theological mob. And I heard that and I pressed pause because I wanted to then have a real conversation with the person that I was listening to online and to say to him, you do realize that um, Jesus says in the scripture for us to wake up. There's a scripture that says, wake up, O sleeper. So we must understand that there are places, there are things we don't see, truths we don't know. If you think you have it all, you've got it all in a nice, neat box, and all the world has to do is to adopt your theology exactly the way you've packaged it, and there's 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 no mystery left. Well, only yeah. idols sit in boxes. I mean, Ooh, that's good. And I think like two things, um, this idea, and I, I, I feel for the, you know, they call the delegates to this convention messengers on it. And I feel for the messengers who are in it, who are an extreme minority. I think that the vote passed like 90 something percent to 11 percent. And, yes. you know, so, so there really is this sense of like, well, obviously the 90 percent must be right. And, and the obviously the 11 percent. Well, and also, but I mean, just like whether you're with the 90 or with the 11, there's just this natural sense of like, there's no way that all these people who, again, are not evil, they're not enemies, they're not, they're people who sincerely love Jesus. And there are people who who understand a lot of right things about Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just feel like at this point, I'd like to pause and say, you know, the Southern Baptist, and, and I have a glass house, so I am not throwing stones, right? I, I, I understand the deep flaws of the denomination that I am a part of. Correct. So I this I don't even think that my denomination is, is different than the Southern Baptist back in the day, especially back, back in the day. But like the Southern Baptist Convention was also fallen, founded on, you know, there needed to be a faith tradition, a Christian faith tradition that would affirm and uphold the rights of slaveholders over enslaved people. Correct again. So, I mean, the reality is like the Southern Baptist tradition was founded in order to say Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus is okay in its sphere, in its theoretical sphere, in its next life eternal sphere, but, but everywhere else, common wisdom, the majority culture needs to, needs to rule. And so, you know, this is not a... a well, and it was based on a theology that said some people are inferior to other people. White people are superior to black and brown people, just as it's still saying men are superior to women. And so in some senses, like, it's just important to say that context that, like, it's not that the Southern Baptist Church has a problem with women. The Southern Baptist Church doesn't have a problem with women or people of color or black people as long as everyone in that sphere is willing to let white men be in authority and are willing are willing to let white men tell them what they are and are not allowed to do. And so, I mean, this is not a, a new thing. And again, um, so I just think it's really important, though, to say, you know, when you're when that's your when you're a fish and that's your water and then you come to a point and you realize, OK, we're looking at this historical thing and this historic change or this historic threat to our understanding of how the world works. And and 90 percent of the community is on one line and 11 
you know, 9% is on the other, it's, it, it, it's really hard to say, how can the minority be right and the majority be wrong? Like, how can that be? There's no way, again, these aren't people in white hoods at this point. I mean, just to say, like, these are our fathers, these are our pastors, these are like good and decent people who we have known to be and, and who have opened the scriptures to us and have, you know, and, and then I think it's really important to go to scripture and say, friends, like, again, and again, and I mean, scripture is a minority report. Scripture is a minority report. Like, if you look at all the prophets, the you know, it's amazing that anyone preserved their writings because every single one of the prophets was standing up against the religious establishment and saying, like, you all are the problem. Correct. Like, you all are the unfaithful ones. Like, stop talking to me about the, um, you know, about this, the, the Persians or about the Assyrians. Like, you're the problem, right? And that that's what exists in Scripture is... God's prophets calling out God's people. And so maybe that I'm not saying the minority is always right, but I'm just saying like to say, well, the majority, the authority, the power players, clearly I need to put my trust in them because they must be right because the majority of the people can't be wrong. I'm like, oh, friends, the majority of the people being wrong is kind of the whole Christian story. And so it's really important just to have that sense of, you can't just say, well, here's someone in authority and whatever they say must be right because they couldn't have gotten to an authority without being right. Like, you shouldn't assume that they're wrong, but you shouldn't assume that they're right. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit so that we are listening deeply within us to, like, what is the Lord telling me Um and really wrestling with these decisions. And the last thing I want to say, and I know we're running out of time, is I, I thought it was really interesting in some of the stuff I was reading. Because, you know, Rick Warren was one of the people, um, because Saddleback Church, which obviously is a big, big church, and they have some women who are campus pastors. So not, you know, they have an org chart and the men are still in hierarchy, but in authority in the hierarchy. But they have some women who are, ha- hold the title of pastor in um, Rick Warren in in you know, he's retired, but he just recently has just kind of done a deep dive in scripture about looking at, you know, the early church and the scriptural record and the role that women played in the early church and, and saying like this women in pastoral roles has always been part of the body of Christ. And, and somebody said to him like, well, why, like, if that's true, how come you're just figuring that out? Like, how come you just did a deep scriptural study of this? And he said, and I just give him all the credit in the world for this. He said, I don't think I wanted to know. Like, I think I didn't look deeply at scripture because I was afraid that when I did, you know, bravely ask the question, what is a deeply held belief that I have that might be wrong? I was afraid that if I asked the question, I might discover wow. the truth. And I, I just wow. think, again, for me, I, I think if we are a community that praises reconciliation and redemption and repentance and, and, you know, and Rick Warren is now saying like, I do, I do grieve this. Like I was wrong and I really harmed people. You know, I mean, I, I, we have to celebrate that and not mock him and not castigate him, but just be like, I, you know, I am glad um, to see what the Lord has done in your life. And I'm, I am glad to say like me too, I'm also wrong. And I'm also a person who has been, um, led into truth and certain things in spite of myself. And I have no pride about anything. And also I, I very much believe that there will be a time in my future where I, I will have the same experience of being like, Oh my, I, was really wrong. I was really wrong, and it ma- and it wasn't cute. Like it mattered. And the question is, are we as a Christian community, do we want to win? Do we want to fight the culture wars? Do we want to rank and exclude people because we were ranked and excluded, or do we want shalom? <laughs> like, do we want interdependent flourishing? And and if we, what what we can't wield the truth like a weapon, and and you know we keep people in these camps in these. You know, if we basically say, well, we will never accept you and your own community will reject you. Like we have to be a place where people are allowed to say I was wrong 
And now I'm just doing my best to be faithful with what I know now in, in moving forward. And I can't go back and change the past. But I also don't believe I have to like go and put myself in the garbage pile for the rest of my life because we serve a redeeming God. And so I just, you know, it, I think it's really hard to, to again, like, thank God I am not powerful and successful because I think it would be really hard to have that kind of power and influence and wealth and then have to, you know, threaten, like, risk it. It's much easier yeah. to take big risks when you don't have as much at stake. Um, that's why the last shall be first and mm. the first shall be last. Mm. So, anyway... I'm, that's what I'm thinking about and what I'm astonishing about. So what are you thinking about? This is what well, thinking several about weeks ago, um, my dear, dear friend, uh, Jean in Nebraska, um, I called her, she called me, but we were having a conversation about a sermon that I preached. And she is so very faithful in um, listening and commenting and helping me review um, my preaching, and I'm very grateful for that. And um, recently she asked me a question that caught me off guard. I preached the text where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And she asked me about, you know, if, you know, do I believe Jesus is the only way? Yes. Well, how does that fit into my ability to welcome and diversity and and all those things don't am am I just being um, exclusive and mean spirited like so many um, Christians can be? And um, I I really didn't have a very good answer when she asked the question, and so I've been thinking about it for several weeks. And um, in part, I have to say now that I do think that the church does not articulate that very well. I think when the church reads that text and says that Jesus is the way, I think what our society hears and the way we come across and our tone is often, we have Jesus, we have the truth, you don't, we're better than you, you're going to hell, period, end of story. Yeah, and we have Jesus and we will decide how much you can have or if you can have any at all. And so your experience with God is only real and valid if we say so. Yes. And I've been asking myself, well, what, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the way? I mean, there's a place in... Uh, the book of Acts. Well, I think it's on the day of Pentecost when, when Peter is preaching a sermon in response to the Spirit filling the church uh, when he says, and there is no other name given among us by which we must be saved. What do we mean? Are we being mean-spirited? Are we being exclusive? Are we saying that every other religion is just trash? Um, I say no. Um, <laughs> When I was thinking about this, what came to mind was many years ago, I took my first trip to Colstone Creamery and had their ice cream. And I thought it was the absolute best ice cream I'd ever had in my entire life, that this was the most incredible experience in terms of ice cream I'd ever had. And what did I do in response to that? I went to my friends and I said, you have got to try this place. I will buy your ice cream because you need this. Um, and I very clearly said, there, there, there is no better ice cream than this. But my attitude was not one of excluding, keeping people out. It was the joy of bringing people into this experience that I had. And I think that's got to be the church's posture. I mean, our mission statement at Dorana Church is that we exist to joyfully share the hope of Jesus. And I think that's just, that's just that just has to be our 
posture when we're saying Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? I mean, I think several things about that. One is I think for too long when people have said that, they have conflated their religion um, about Jesus with Jesus. So uh, in, intentionally, right? Like the, the gospel is power. And so these um, truth claims and salvation claims that Jesus has made, people have, again, I think sometimes very intentionally, but maybe sometimes not intentionally, but have have figured out ways to kind of um, use that power for their own advantage, for their own power, for their own wealth. And, and to say, like, again, there's Jesus is our practice of our religion exclusively. And so, you know, I just think that that's, that's ridiculous theologically um, and blasphemous. Um, and so, you know, do I believe, do I experience Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? Yes. But do I believe that, do I believe that my experience of Jesus is, is authentic and real? Sure. Yes. Do I believe that my authentic and real experience of Jesus is exhaustive and all encompassing that like all of who Jesus is and all of the ways that God is at work in the world, saving the world that I, I understand and approve of and can see and like, absolutely not. So what I believe in ultimately, and I think, you know, scripture very much backs this up is that, you know, God is, is a mystery. God is, you know, God's ways are above and beyond our ways that we see through a glass dimly right now that, you know, that Jesus, um, that God manifested God's saving goodness in the person of Jesus um, so that we would see and know and have intimate healed relationship with God, but that, you know, that is an expression of who God is and um, not the totality of that. And so, you know, I do believe, you know, and now we're getting into Trinitarian mystery, but I mean, all, all I'm saying is I don't have to say that my experience of Jesus isn't real. Like I I have come to life in God through Jesus Christ and my own story is how that's happened and it's real. But I also understand that God is God and I am not. And so God is at work in the world with complete, you know, goodness and power and sovereignty and is not seeking my approval of what that looks like. So I don't, you know, my whole thing when people ask a reasonable question about like sort of shouldn't we shouldn't we try to get Muslims to know Jesus or Jewish people to know Jesus or Hindus to know Jesus and I'm like I mean I think we need to be a community that is actively welcoming and including all people period full stop and I think our first priority is to get Christians to believe in Jesus right like I think mm. there are so many people who believe in their religion um, and have, you know, found kind of a niche in their life that they're, that Jesus is allowed to occupy. And then there are just clear calls of the gospel in their own life that they are just very content to say, like, not now, not yet. Well, you didn't mean that, God. Like, so I, so I'm like, I have no, no sense that I have an obligation to go out and find people in other faiths and say, let me tell you how to do and write and believe in Jesus. Cause I know for sure that I have so much to repent and grow and learn in Jesus, me personally and within my community. Now, what I suspect is that if Christians could learn to love Jesus and the way of Jesus, and I want to come back to that, above all else mm. and above what it could get us, right? If we could learn to reject the temptations that Jesus, that the devil gave Jesus in the, in the desert, which is the devil saying to Jesus, use your power to feed yourself, use your power to get power, use your power to protect yourself. Jesus said, no, the church says, yes, please. Like if we could reject those temptations like Jesus did and say, not my will be done, but the father's will be done. And I'm going to like, let the father lead me places where it doesn't look like I'm going to you know, it doesn't look like it's going to end up at a banquet, you know, in the presence of my enemies who I think won't be your enemies at that point. Like then I think people would see God 
and the what they would see in God is what I would name Christ, what Richard Rohr would say is the universal Christ. And I think we would be astonished that Jesus was like not lying when he said, I have other sheep who are not of this flock, right? So I just think I don't need to say I've got to abandon the words of scripture because some of my brothers and sisters have been um, led into temptation or not delivered from evil and have used those as a weapon. Like just because we have misused them does not mean we don't have the power to profane God's truth. So, and ultimately what I think about when I say Jesus is the way is not, Oh, this is a claim that says Christianity is superior to all other faiths. I like that's just, that is such a human question and answer um, because God is about shalom and restoration and redemption and reconciliation. So that's just not even a, that's, that's like trying to plug your Mac plug into your, your PC computer. Like that just doesn't, it doesn't, there's no, there's no interface there. When I wish that Christians would think about when we talk about Jesus being the way is to say, our life with Jesus and the truth of Jesus we experience when we walk with Jesus along the way. Like it's not a destination, it's the the way. And so, you know, we have a couple things that we're we're really wrestling with in our community right now. And and they and they will have a definitive decision point. And after that decision point, you know, like that decision will matter. That decision will change things one way or another. And there's just a, a temptation to say like, okay, well, we just need to, we need to get to that decision and we need to make the right decision. And then once we do that, you know, then whatever, then it'll be good. Or once we get to that point, if we make the wrong decision, then it'll be terrible. But I think, you know, when I say Jesus is the way, it helps me remember, it's not just about getting to that decision point. And it's not even just trying to, worry or control what the decision is. It's saying like, no, right now on our way to that decision, this is our life with Jesus. This way is the blessing. Like right now in the midst of the uncertainty, as we're wrestling in some uncomfortable spaces and places and conversations, like right now Jesus is with us. And so we don't need to look forward and dream about the future or dread the future. Jesus is the way and we are on the way right now. And as we practice the values of Jesus, like imperfectly and feebly and weakly with, you know, and sometimes like Peter, you know, one second we're saying, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And I, you know, Jesus is saying like, you had to get that from the Holy Spirit because no other way you could have known it. And then in the next second, we're saying, get, you can't go to Jerusalem, right? Like we have these moments where we really are, are able by grace to, you know, experience what is in us that's not of us and know what we can't naturally know. And then right after that, we have moments when we just like lose it. And, and the thing is... <laughs> Our salvation, our belovedness, our our relationship with Jesus is not at stake. Correct. And so we can just say, in my in my best moments, I'm not more loved. In my worst moments, I'm not less loved. In my best moments, I'm not more worthy. In my worst moments, I'm not less worthy. Jesus is the way. So I can screw up and not live in mortal mortal terror. I am just free to do the best I can and know like this outrageous promise that Paul makes that like God makes all things work together for good um, for those who love Jesus. And, and if I love Jesus, it's because God has given me the ability to love Jesus. So really at the end of the day, I don't have faith in my faith. I have faith in the one I have faith in. My faith is crappy. I am a hypocrite. I like I'm not saying that like it doesn't matter. I'm just saying like I understand that I'm I'm anxious and I'm like you know really prone all the time to struggle between serving people without using them or manipulating them like just trusting that God is God. But that's what I mean. That's what I think Jesus means when like the yoke is easy and the burden is light because you're like, oh, I am free to be human. Like I'm free to be limited. I'm free to have weaknesses and not worry that like if I don't keep it perfectly together every second, I might undo salvation on the cross. Like I believe in the goodness of what God is doing. I'm not doing it. I'm not setting the captives free and I am not good news to the oppressed. 
and I am not giving sight to the blind, but I really believe that Jesus is doing that like now. And so I get to be a part of it, which is amazing. And also I'm not responsible for it. And, you know, really trying to walk in this place of like, I can show up, I can do the best I can. And then like the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not me. Um, It's not me. And that is like, some of the most freeing words in mm. the faith tradition is it's just not about me. Mm. We're out of time. Well, first, um, let me ask you a question. Um, how much do you think I care about the audio quality of this podcast? Um, so much. Yes. Um, can I be petty for a moment? Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to circle back to the beginning of this podcast. Do you realize... How many times today? And you don't normally do this. Like this, it, this is not a regular habit. But do you know what you did today? I, I, I cannot wait to find out what I did today. Bless me, brother. <laughs> Bless me. So today, and I stopped counting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and again, you don't normally do this. Now you... Like people can't see us. Uh, this is an audio-only podcast, um, and but people who watch you preach know that you hand gesture quite a bit when you preach and when you talk in general. But today, um, you pound. We are we are meeting in uh, Kate's office at the Grove. We are at her desk, and um, yeah, you pounded the desk quite a bit today. <laughs> <laughs> so, friends, uh, when when you hear this thunderous <laughs> sorry sound in the audio that's not me okay good to know and also i just want to say like just we, just to be petty also just to be petty. like we um the grove is just an amazing community um and it is not a community with like central air and so i have a window unit in my office which we were running as we were sort of meeting and talking before and then we started to record and we had to turn it off. And so, like, it's hot. It's warm. It's warm. It's fine. I mean, it's I just fun. need some ice water. <laughs> like, that's what we like to say at the Grove. Like, we don't have central air. But you can have an internal air conditioner and it's called drink ice water. Yeah. Okay. The there other sad go. thing, though, is our ice maker is broken. So oh, that is no. Anyway, oh, no. but that's good. But we are um, out of time. Right. But uh, thank you so much for listening to us. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church Derida, you can go to their website, which is deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. Yay. You can also worship with them at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings or check out their YouTube page or their podcast. It's D-E-R-I-T-A Prez. Um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org, and you can check out our YouTube channel or our Facebook page. Just look for the green tree icon because there's a lot of groves out there, or you can join us for worship Sundays at 10 a.m. So thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.